This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 15th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Another sad day for the family of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Once again, lost a close family member. I've had my family members come to heart disease and cancer. He's lost uncles and cousins to firing squads, flamethrowers, and anti-artillery aircraft guns. Overkill, sure, but to his mind, just kill. And now, well, I'll read this New York Times tweet in its entirety. Kim Jong-un's estranged half-brother was assassinated by two women who stabbed him with poison needles. It just goes to show you don't need emojis, gifs, a subtweet or a hashtag to have the perfect tweet. Just report the news when the news is Kim Jong-un's estranged half-brother was assassinated by two women who stabbed him with poison needles. Now, I suppose you can criticize me for having sport making jokes about the death of uh, Kim Jong-nam. Although Michael Madden, editor of the North Korea Leadership Watch, which is a website that watches North Korean leadership, does say that Kim Jong-nam was involved in some funny business. Does this open the door for me to have sport for Kim Jong-nam just because he was working as a cyber attacker, possibly a money launderer, the scion of one of the most evil regimes in the world? If you want to criticize me for that, it is fair. Consider this a roast of Kim Jong-nam, but without the poisoned barbs, the actual literal poisoned barbs. You know where you don't want to be? You don't want to be the name that appears after the phrase Kim Jong-un's estranged. That person doesn't have such great longevity. You know, because Kim Jong-un, he doesn't let those estrangements fester, right? He really addresses them. Kim Jong-un's all about closure. He'll let you know if he's bothered. He really hates being needled. And now, so too does his half-brother. Kim Jong-nam, that's the name of the dead half-brother, he was attacked by the female assailants who escaped from the airport by cab. That seems like leaving a lot to chance. Wait, are you a passenger gate D, the middle island or the far island? Okay, can you see me? Okay, I'm wearing a blue coat. I'm holding two poison needles dripping with the blood of the estranged North Korean's half-brother. All right, all right, I think I see you too. And Kim Jong-nam, who might have been gassed, by the way, it might not necessarily a needling. That was one report. So he stumbles to a gate agent at the airport and he pleads for help from an assassination attempt. These people will not even get you out of your middle seat on an international flight if you're not a platinum member. Good luck with the post-assassination attempt assist. As Kim Jong-nam was losing consciousness, I'm sure he heard some excuse about blackout dates. Here's some more details about Kim Jong-nam. He's the eldest son of Kim Jong-il, the second uh, generation of North Korean leaders. And, you know, 
gods. He was thought to be the natural heir to the family dynasty. I'm quoting from the Washington Post. But this assumption was thrown into doubt in 2001 when Kim Jong-nam was caught in Narita International Airport in Tokyo trying to enter Japan with his wife and son on fake Dominican Republic passports. Kim Jong-nam's bore the name, no, not Francisco Encarnacion, but Peng Zhang, which is Mandarin Chinese for fat bear. Oh, you should know that Kim Jong-nam, kind of portly, dismissed his Tommy boy. So Kim Jong-nam told authorities that all he wanted to do was go to Tokyo to visit Disneyland. I, I guess because Disney owns the Winnie the Pooh franchise. Anyway, it didn't work out. He was detained, sent to China. So here are some more family details I came across. Kim Jong-un has a full brother. His name is Kim Jong-chol. And Kim Jong-chol, according to the Washington Post, last seen at an Eric Clapton concert in London in 2015. No doubt grooving too. I shot the sheriff but I did not attack the deputy with two female assassins wielding poison needles. On the show today, Trump staff changes and who we owe an apology to. Hint, not a puppet. But first, with Stephen Colbert's Late Show hitting its stride, we paid a visit to the Ed Sullivan Theater to talk to the show's executive producer. Chris Licht has a background in news and a great sense of timing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In the time of Trump, the progeny of The Daily Show have provided the sharpest satire in different flavors. Samantha Bee blends the repertorial style of her old format with withering takedowns, where she plays off clips and news items. It's what you would call a desk piece in comedy, except there's no desk. She delivers it standing. This time, the revolution will not be seated. On the other extreme, there's HBO's John Oliver, where the marketing materials for his show depict the host not merely seated, but hiding behind his desk. But Oliver is actually fearless in form, if not in personal attitude. Last Week Tonight is described as political comedy, and Oliver is a political comedian, but he's actually a policy comedian working hard to break down arcane topics. And then there's Stephen Colbert. He's the truest heir to the spirit of Jon Stewart, especially if you think about The Daily Show during the Bush years. It was an indispensable satirical lens to process an incomprehensible presidency. And there's another reason why Colbert is really the new Daily Show. It's that his show is daily, and it's really sharp. Here he is on Monday Night Show, talking about the weekend appearances of White House advisor Stephen Miller on all the Sunday shows. The powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Adding, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, (laughs) kneel before Zod. Neil. Jimmy, can we just play that last sentence again, please? The powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Will not be questioned? Let me test that theory. What the f*** are you talking about? 
Colbert has also been pioneering a new form of comedy that I've noticed lately. It's called the parenthetical put-down. White House press secretary and Melissa McCarthy's retirement plan, Sean Spicer. <laughs> Education secretary and woman ahead of you at Starbucks with a really complicated order. <laughs> Betsy DeVos, White House press secretary and stranger at the bar who wants you to know he would have left Barbara anyway, Sean Spicer. Trump's top political advisor and handsomest guy at the liquor store, Steve Bannon. Former national security advisor and man who doesn't see what's so damn funny, Michael Flynn. White House press secretary and angry neck with ears, Sean Spicer. When Colbert made the move from Comedy Central to CBS, there was a brief period of initial curiosity, and then he settled far behind Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show in the ratings. But since Election Day, Colbert has caught Fallon, gaining 400,000 viewers, which is almost precisely the number that The Tonight Show has lost. And for the last two weeks, The Late Show has been the most watched show in late night. In truth, Colbert's comedy, his willingness to call out hypocrisy, and his eagerness to wade in waters that are thought to make middle America uncomfortable, that actually hasn't changed much over the last couple years. He was, to my eye, really sharp and funny during the entire election season. Maybe it's just that America has caught up to his ire. We don't want a show that playfully tugs on Donald Trump's hair. We want one that grabs him by the lapels and doesn't let go. What I hear most often as I travel the country are five words. Please don't grab my pussy. But there have been tweaks that have helped The Late Show, that have made it more palatable. And in late night TV, tweaks can be the difference between audience comfort and cancellation. Chris Licht, a TV news executive, was the man brought in to help Colbert retool the show. We met him at the offices of the Ed Sullivan Theater, where Letterman presided for all those years. Most signs of Dave are gone, though on street level, we did run into Rupert G. still making sandwiches at the Hello Deli. But you know, there are no losers in Rupert G.'s Hello Deli. What do you have for Rupert was a mainstay on Letterman, and he's been on the Colbert show a little bit. You know, I always get nervous going on the show anyway. That's the, ir- yeah, that's the irony of my whole career in this so-called showbiz thing, but um, it always freaks me out. I just get very nervous. I, I was never meant for this business anyway. I'm serious. So I ordered a Colbert sandwich, which we found out used to be the Paul Schaefer, but it's still as delicious as ever. And I went upstairs and talked to Chris Licht. All right. We sat down next to each other on his couch, did the stereotypical male bonding over cute footwear. Also nice shoes. Look, very similar. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. I wore them specially for you. <laughs> Good anticipatory footwear. And then I had him introduce himself. Uh, Chris Licht. And I am the uh, showrunner and executive producer of... The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and also uh, Executive Vice President of Special Programming for CBS Corporation. You're a news guy, right? That's your background? I, up until about eight months ago, total news guy. And what kind of a news guy were you? I mean, I've looked over your career. It seems varied, but it seems like you're drawn to the uh, meteor side, meteor side of news. Yeah, I, I have been fortunate enough to be on projects that value actual news. So that's been really cool, whether it was Morning Joe or CBS This Morning. These were projects that really thrived on doing actual, real journalism. Do you think there's a parallel between what Colbert is for late night and what CBS Morning is for that day part? You know, within the continuum of um, kind of substance and going for it and not pandering to service and let's be fun and cute. 
I would say Colbert and CBS are both on one side of that continuum. Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities. Steven is a grown-up. The show is for grown-ups. Yes. Um, and it's about uh, long-term brand building as opposed to short little shots of adrenaline that hopefully will spike the ratings once in a while. You know, that's really, we look at it as the long haul and, and programming it in a smart, funny way for smart people. So when you say Steven's a grown up, is that to the, in the eyes of the TV industry, is that a plus or a minus? Well, I look at it through the eyes of the audience. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but, but then again, if the audience is over 49, they're not as uh, important as an audience member who's 20 years younger. Not necessarily true. I think it's a unique voice in the late night landscape. And that's what, what he has to be. This is who what you watch on his show every night is who he is. And that is who you hired. And that's what the show is built around. He doesn't pretend well. So you're seeing a guy who is best known for a character that is 90% antithetical to who he actually is, doesn't pretend well. That's a good point. In, in, in this venue where he's not doing a character and he's doing Steven, he is who he is. Since he's not a stand-up uh, and since he played that character for so many years, a version of that character on The Daily Show, and I know his career beforehand was more improv, you know, is it fair to say that this is uh, the longest he's been himself and tried to get an audience just being himself? I think it's the only time. Yeah. I think in his career, he's he's either been playing a character as an actor or as a comedian, but this is the first time he is just being himself. So in the beginning, and I listened to the, the transition podcast, his transition went smoother than others, I would say. I listened to his podcast beforehand and, you know, he would talk about, oh, I was out selecting the type of wood for the desk. Like, was that a mistake then to have him that involved? I think I wasn't here, but I think he would tell you that he didn't know what he didn't know about a new launching a network broadcast. And I think uh, if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't have been as involved in those things. Yeah. Um, but if you know him, it was quite natural that he would be that involved in it. And now uh, he realizes other people can handle that stuff. The changes that I have noticed are things about kind of bonding with the audience here in the Ed Sullivan Theater and the audience at home, uh, high-fiving the audience, even Tell me if I'm wrong. I, th I think the camera angle of the monologue has changed since you started. Yeah. Here's the thing. What you're seeing, like we're relating to the audience, yeah. is a byproduct of him having fun and feeling more natural. And so it's not like we sit in a room and go, you know, what would be great is if you walked out and did high fives with the audience. Just like we never said, you know, it would be great. You should run out of the theater at the end. Yeah. You know, all of that he just does. And if it, works we do it again running out of the theater at the end was born on the night where he got drunk you know he got drunk on set and he's like i i am not doing the postmortem. i am running out of this theater i'm getting in my car and going home and I, you know the next day i go that was actually pretty cool we should do that every night he's like great so it's he's discovering things because that's he's relating to the material and to entertaining the audience as opposed to, you know, the, the, the wood on the desk. But are there things that, so you, you know, paint this picture where he does something and if it works, you're the one to point to it. But are there things that you said, let's try this. It came from you. There must be. It's a collaboration. Yeah. yeah. You'll sure. I mean, so what are some of those? The, the show having a real structure, Mm -hmm. uh, was really important where we, we try to do those cold opens every night. The monologue 
doesn't always have to be X no X length and then move over to the desk and do a desk bit. Maybe some nights should just be the monologue and yes. having, and having the structure of producing a show form around the creativity that's there. Because beforehand was there this idea that, well, let's embrace the fact that anything can happen. And now you're saying let's embrace the fact within this structure. In fact, creativity uh, tends to flourish within structure. Yeah. It's bringing a little bit of, what I learned in doing news where you, you know, we did live shows every morning and it has structure, but you have to be ready to blow the structure up when it, yeah. when it needs it. And just bringing that mentality of not becoming predictable. It's, it's part of the larger avoiding the largest sin in, in any entertainment of being predictable and boring. What about the virality part of it? You know, shareable videos that you don't need the structure for that. That just a, can be a one-off thing that gains fire and sure. carpool stuff. Uh, what, what Fallon does, you know, he's going to rap with, uh, Timberlake. It's going to get a lot of hits. Sure. I'm sure you'd love to have a replicable, uh, property that can go viral to that degree. How important is it to you? How do you get there? Look, from my standpoint, I would love it. I, I love it when we have moments on the show that go viral. Yeah. That to me is, that's, that's the apex of what we're trying to do. Now that said, um, you're always trying to find something that catches fire and it takes time. The thing that Steven did at the end of the Showtime special, the monologue, was the number one trending thing on YouTube for five days. You know, that is a moment that, you know, and, and it broke every rule. It was like 14 minutes long. Yeah. You know, it, it, it broke all of the rules of something quote unquote going viral. But if we can create moments on the show that get passed around uh, and are a reflection of the comedy and sensibility that we have, great. He's not going to be, uh, this is not going to be a show and he's not going to be a host where you do something goofy with a celebrity and that's going to be our bread and butter. So how did our politics get so poisonous? I think it's because we overdosed, especially this year. We drank too much of the poison. You take a little bit of it so you can hate the other side. And it tastes kind of good. And you like how it feels. And there's a gentle high to the condemnation, right? And you know you're right, right? You know you're right. I think the desk pieces, I think the second bit of the show after the monologue, were the best of their kind. And it, I think post-Daily Show, that was the best example of that sensibility. Can his, well, he's not going to change, but is it the right positioning for him in this political moment to be not just your skeptical uncle who will raise an eye at both sides, but really aggressively, properly, in my opinion, um, a watchdog of Trump? <sighs> it's not a question I think about a lot because it is who he is. Yeah. We are a topical entertainment late night show. And that is a reflection of what's happening in the world. And right now, this is the biggest story in the world and the anxiety over it. Um, and let's see what happens. And, you know, Stephen's mantra is give him a chance, but don't give him an inch. And that actually puts him far closer to the middle than a lot of people because he's not a never Trumper or any of that stuff. He's our president. Give him a chance but don't give them an inch. So, so my question is, in the, the history of late night, is there evidence that if you have a more pointed take, 
versus a more, you know, middle of the road affability. You're, you're aiming towards just likability versus you're aiming towards pointed. That pointed could win. Well, I think you can be likable and pointed. Yeah. Again, he is who he is and he's pointed and it's a unique spot in the landscape right now. I think part of what did work when the show started was trying to be all things to all people. So what, what fell away? What was one of the things that he stopped trying to be? I think he started speaking his mind. I, th- I don't think he was in the beginning. Yeah. I guess to put it bluntly, well, I got two questions to put it bluntly. One is I look at the Leno and Letterman dynamic and I think everyone, I don't know everyone, but most people who appreciate comedy or um, aesthetics would say Letterman was innovative and Leno was a successful late night host, but he was really playing towards broad swaths of middle America trying to be likable. And now you have the same dynamic with Colbert and Fallon and Fallon is, you know, puppy dog likable and Colbert is more on the Letterman side of pointed. Letterman lost, quote unquote, lost that last race, why will the new one be different? I think there is enough room in late night for something for everybody. The show doesn't have to be something for everybody. And I think if Les Moonves wanted uh, another version of Jimmy Fallon, then that's what he would have hired. He hired Stephen for a reason. All right, Chris, thanks so much. This is great. My pleasure. And now the spiel. Erstwhile labor secretary and unmasked Hamburglar Andrew Puzder has withdrawn as the nominee for that cabinet position. Puzder didn't actually seem to want the job that much. He was complaining about disclosing his assets, but he was mostly hurt by an old episode of the Oprah Winfrey show in which his ex-wife alleged that he beat her. The former Mrs. Puzder has since withdrawn the allegations, which she made during the show with her identity disguised, but several Republican senators saw the episode, which was hard to get and actually had to be provided to the Senate by Oprah Winfrey or the Harpo people. And these senators thought that they just couldn't vote for Puzder. Now, there is little chance that whoever is next in line to be labor secretary will be in any way pro-labor or kind to workers, but maybe one of the baggage of a man who once said robots were the perfect workers. In other Trump staffing news, Keith Kellogg will be serving as the acting NSA national security advisor now that Michael Flynn is gone. But insiders say the permanent pick could be Vice Admiral Robert Harward if he wants the job. Trump is said to be drawn to Harward's stars, three of them, his resume, head of the Navy SEALs, but also his look. Here's how the Times describes him. Mr. Harward looks the part of a battle-hardened military man, a crucial factor for a president who has made clear that he considers appearance an important indicator of a job candidate's suitability for a role. With his bald head, ice blue eyes, and long scar of mysterious providence down his cheek. Ooh, oh my, icy blue eyes and a mysterious scar. That's one seal who could toot my horn. You have undone my defenses via underwater demolition, sir. Uh, That was Donald Trump as Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland's still alive, by the way. She's 100. Okay, before you get all a titter, realize this. Bald head, icy blue eyes, facial scar. That also does describe Donald Pleasance as Ernst Stavro Blofeld. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. 
Okay, it's not the Telly Savalas Blofeld or the other Blofelds, but the Donald Pleasant Blofeld, actually, ball, blue eyes, scarred. Now, if Harward were stroking a pussycat, well, actually, that would fit right in with the administration, wouldn't it? But I do want to say this about Flynn's ouster. The new, which are really the confirmed allegations and revelations about repeated contacts between the administration and the Russians during the campaign, can we see what's going on and maybe take a moment to give Hillary Clinton a break about her campaign messaging? Look, I know it's impossible. A candidate loses and all the mistakes he or she made were bad. And you can't say that they made some great campaigning choices if they lost, even if they did win the overall vote. And yeah, she lost Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and she specifically lost the vote of working class voters there. So then you don't have to be that smart to say, aha, if you had a better message for working class voters, an economic message, that would have been the key to victory. But you know what message Hillary Clinton said over and over that actually seems to me like a pretty good message. She said, you can't vote for this guy. He's in cahoots with the Russians. Look, from everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, you're that the, the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America, that you encouraged espionage against our people, that you are willing to spout the Putin line, sign up for his wish list, break up NATO, do whatever he wants to do, and that you continue to get help from him because he has a very clear favorite in this race. If we're perfectly honest about an economic message, you know, I'm bringing back the jobs, I'm bringing back the coal jobs and the manufacturing jobs, you know, we give that credit because it resonates and because it has simplicity and repetition, but it wasn't true. And if Hillary Clinton had concocted an economic message, it might have been more true. But for a lot of people, she was giving whatever this message was going to be. It wouldn't be true. Their lives weren't going to get better. The Indiana machinist and the coal miner isn't getting that job back. But you know what she was 100% right and true about? That Trump was in cahoots, indeed in cahoots with the Russians. And at the time, Not knowing what we know now that she lost those votes and the blue wall crumbled. But at the time, if you told me that one candidate could present a very compelling case that the rival candidate was indeed in cahoots with the Russians, I would say, yes, you should definitely emphasize that point at every stage, in every way. Russian stooge, say it loud. I guess up until November 2016, Proving that your opponent was a Russian stooge was an ipso facto disqualification in most American elections. I had that assumption. Maybe not in some university towns or the Brighton Beach Community Board. But if you told me, hey, this one candidate can prove the other candidates a Russian stooge, I would say that's a message to make. So I just wanted to take this moment, wanted to look back and say, yeah, maybe Hillary Clinton was too much of an insider. She knew how to pull the strings, but Trump was indeed the puppet. Chris Berube, Canadian and guy who alerts me when my poison North Korean half-brother jokes go too far, produces the gist. I don't always listen. 
Mary Wilson, former NPR Harrisburg bureau chief and person whose parents apparently weren't worried about plagiarizing Motown girl groups, also produces the show. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is bald with icy blue eyes and a psychological scar from having produced weekend news for a decade. Andy Bowers, podcast executive and man who regrets not driving a bit more recklessly when he worked near Santa Monica High School in the early aughts, is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The gist, we used to believe in the two-state solution, but now we're saying we could live with either one state or two states. I am, of course, talking about the Dakotas. Umpru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.